0: set the timer. Boom, boom, boom. I promise you, when you look back to this moment, this will be the most rewarding hadith.
1: Oh, okay. That's
0: my guarantee. I like
1: that. (laughs) As long as it's not a cliché. I promise no (laughs) cliché.
0: And I'll do this so that when I'm editing, I have a line. You know the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing you're familiar with some of these little tricks I'm getting you're getting, to getting there yeah. <laughs> all right and uh, here we go oh the window's open I'm sorry okay, okay. any chance I have to go down memory lane with a complete stranger is a thrill. Now, you're not a complete stranger because I know you from social media. I know you as an AUB academic. I've even heard you speak several times. I snuck myself in to Jemeze once, You you were talking, and I just sort of sat in the back. This may have been Alia years ago, but it's just a moment, a chance encounter where you were talking to people and I was, Listening. Uh, one of the co-hosts of this podcast is a deep admirer of yours, Elia Haber, and she's, I think, in Montreal now, pursuing science journalism. Uh, there have been hundreds of people suggesting I speak with you, and this is now maybe three years in the making. <laughs> Hussam al-Aid <laughs> takes full advantage of me going to Urbanista, stops me and says, why haven't you spoken to Najat? <laughs> I said, you know, you're right. I'll do it my way. And he said, no, 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 no. Do it his way. Hands me your number. And now we're talking. I'm an admirer of storytellers. And I think, whether intentionally or not, you're a gifted storyteller. Because any I hear you speak about this tragedy we're going through... You begin with Demur, which I really enjoy. And I enjoy it for selfish reasons. Because my childhood, any escape from Beirut heading south, before the highway was finished to Sur, it's the beauty of Demur. And I don't think of it otherwise. It's always beautiful. Even when you have that civil war, tragedy associated, but the nature is, it's really special and it stands out. And I got to know that you're really of the earth. You don't just respect the earth. You're from the earth, if you will. You have so much passion for banana fields (laughs) and vegetation. And every video I've seen of you recently, I think, is either on the beach in Demur or you're beginning the story there. And I think the year is important because you always say 1974.
1: right?
0: And it's right before this whole experiment began to plunder. You're alive back then? I'm not. I've only heard stories. But I like going back in time enough. And this is my very long way of introducing your story because I think in many ways, whether you're saying it or not all the time, it's, I think, a longing to return for some semblance of normality. And that it mean, in itself means good governance, but not great governance. Normal governance that you can reform and you can build from. You're not aiming for the stars, but you want some semblance of normalty, normality. That resonates with me. So let's start, if you will, with why someone with your skill set, primarily in the sciences, but you're an expert on many things when it comes to environmental issues. You're an expert on waste management, pollution levels that we deal with. I think you your name and AUB go hand in hand. Why is someone with a skill set like yours? taking the very (laughs) painful road of local politics and parliamentary elections. I know it's a very long and very, perhaps, wide question to start with, but I think it's important because you're an inspiration to many people, and I'd like to explore your psychology first before we get into hard politics.
1: Whoa, that's a long introduction. <laughs> I'll edit it later. <laughs> and that's a lot to deal with and to think about. <laughs> My God, you brought in so many things, so many, so many memories in this introduction. In fact, those memories are the path mm. that actually uh, uh, make make you. Yeah. So if it wasn't for the 1974 massacre in Damur, and if it wasn't for me uh, being brought up in a farmland and being the daughter of a farmer, and being called or would like to be called the daughter of the earth, if it wasn't for all of this, I don't think I would have been an environmental mm. activist mm. And I don't think I would have been the scholar activist that I would like to call myself now. You're the first person I've heard say this, scholar activist. And now taking those words into implementation Mm. and venturing into a new field, challenging myself first Mm. and then challenging the politicians to deal with the scientists
0: Is there anything going back to the mid-1970s, before the Civil War, that you hold on to when it comes to your expectations of what Lebanon should function like? And I'm asking it this way because my understanding is that Lebanon never had fully functional governance. It was wobbly at best. But that there was a semblance of, of decent governance. And I would, maybe it's a natural question, maybe not. But are you holding on to something that you lost in 1974, early 1975?
1: No, not whatsoever. Mm. I think pre immigration or migration from the Moor was a very, very, very normal, uh, conventional, conservative life. Mm. Nothing uh, extraordinary. I was. Uh, one out of six kids.
0: <laughs> oh. oh, wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Yes. Uh, so
1: <laughs> I was the oldest among the girls, but I have a brother who's older than me. Mm. So I was given some responsibility mm. to look after my little sisters, mm. but nothing much that is, you know, that, that, that is there to hold on to. I see. I think it's the war, the civil war and the forced migration from our home, once, twice, three times, and perhaps four times, if we want to count the number of homes that we made, that made me angry and look for hope every time the world crumbles around us.
0: There's something about your story that links up to many of your generation, and this includes my own family, my parents, that had to leave this country to pursue their dreams. And I like, these are maybe anecdotal examples, but I've heard you say this, that with your with your father, it was a choice between chemistry or biology. And you were adamant to choose one and you ended up with the other, but it's still the science world. Uh, but that scholarly work or that research was primarily in California, if I understood correctly. In the early 2000s, you make this return to (laughs) Lebanon. And it's some, it's decades after you last saw Demur. I, I hope I got that right. So there's, I think there's this yearning to give this country another chance. And I'm wondering, this is maybe, this is too long of a duration maybe, but in the last two decades, I can imagine there's immense disappointment with how this country emerged from the civil war And has that in any way shaped your politics today? Meaning, have you seen things happen in this country in the last two decades where it's repetition that you're trying to stop? Or is it something completely different that you're starting and away from scratch with your own aspirations? And this could even feed into earlier attempts at reform. And they could be cosmetic or they could be even benign at times. But this is definitely not the first time Lebanese have tried. So is, is there anything in the lessons learned maybe in the last two decades that you want to prevent?
1: I have a great belief, belief in, in the country and in the people of this country. I think there, are, there is so much goodness in the hearts of these people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: of my people, of, my, of this country, of the people who live in this country. And I'm not, I'm not naive. I think every person I meet, I feel I gain the word afterwards. It's so much richness in the heart and in the mind of the Lebanese people and the residents of this country as well. I don't know why when they go to rule, they change. Is it because we never built a system is it because we cannot be confined in this in a system or is it because we let the ugly rule over the good i don't know but when you take people individually mm. at least when i take all the people i have met so far mm. in my life i have really gained so much And I have really benefited from the goodness and the positivity of each and every single person I have met. That's why I believe in this country. I really believe, and and I would not give up. I know that there are some corrupt people, Mm. and I know that some people are are actually more than corrupt. They're criminals, but they're not the majority, Mm. they are the minority. They have ruled the country because people are good. And they have taken full advantage of people. Hmm. I hope I'm not very naive that they will take advantage of me and also exploit, you know, drag me into, into their, uh, uh, their ugliness. But, but it is this collective goodness that drives me and continues to push me to break glass ceilings and continue to hope that this country one day is going to be the country that we love.
0: I'm going to try to merge two things together, which resonates with me, the way you're describing this little real estate called Lebanon, and the difficulties of moving forward in a sensible way. I agree that this is probably the most tolerant, cosmopolitan, diverse and rich diversity little edge of planet earth and I think there's no place more beautiful than Lebanon and I also would add to that this seems to be the hardest country to govern (laughs) so it's a very odd sort of gathering of two things at once and your perspective is obviously wider than mine I mean you, you know Lebanon in a way that I'll never know and you're I think anyone that's approaching politics with an expertise in the background faces a big challenge, which is Lebanese politics is difficult even when the country's doing better. I think it, you're battling inertia, you're battering ingrained, entrenched communalism, sectarianism, things that make it maybe inefficient on a good day, but that said, if you could put, or if you could hone in on a structural problem that you see in front of you that you would like to change fundamentally? It doesn't even have to be in your current candidacy, which we'll, we'll get into. But as you as a citizen, is there a primary obstacle in, in your way when it comes to reform? And if there is one, could you describe it the way you see it?
1: Yes. The thing that bothers me the most is that whenever we want to solve a problem, we don't approach it systematically, scientifically, Hmm. with a strategic plan. Hmm. And without data and without evidence and without a feasibility study or SWOT analysis or anything that would make a long-term strategic plan, all solutions that are proposed will be fit to one or more of the personal gains. So I, don't, I, I would hope that by bringing in one or more scientific people into the parliament, that the way we think about our problems is mm. changed. Mm. And that's what I would like to see. I don't wanna talk about one particular you know, problem, because we have many. Hmm. I want to talk about the process of getting to solve the problem. And this Hmm. is what is missing. We always tend... To, we always feel in Lebanon like we're watching a movie yeah. and that the, the you know the, the the hero has to gain has to be you know we need to clap at the end of the movie <laughs> right. and and everybody has to leave happy yeah this is not the way we solve problems well i
0: appreciate this analysis it's process
1: the process i'm mm. a person of a
0: process and you're emphasizing science background which i enjoy as well you don't see much of that although you do see certain careers you see a lot of engineers you see a lot of at times lawyers but I appreciate that you're talking I think more about STEM in that sense you want that in parliament too yes yes. well let me then try to offer a comparison two people I deeply admire although we just met but I I'm not trying to massage anyone's ego but I do really appreciate what you're doing I also appreciate Abi Abishaker he was on the podcast uh, several days ago Mm -hmm. actually And I know it's not the same career, but I think there's a lot of parallel. And there is overlap at times in at least waste management or the ideas of how to improve the environment in general. I asked him a similar question. Someone with the right intentions, trying to get something done through parliament. Do you see parliament as the way to get something like this done? Or do you see it more as in you're entering parliament to pressure Parties that are more visible and more established to begin doing the right thing. Because I'm wondering what individuals in Parliament can actually do on something very basic, but something that is also killing us, which is our environment. So um, maybe it's it's a stretch a bit, but do you see your role as pressure or do you see it as actually process and, and politics?
1: I think I usually... All throughout my career. If I wanna put pressure, I show the way. Mm. I walk the talk. Mm. I'm a person of a process that leads to solutions. I cannot live without doing, you know, getting to the end of the process and seeing a solution implemented. Mm. I can't do it. I mean this is it gets me angry, it gets me anxious. If I can't do it, if I can't find a solution, that means I didn't I didn't get it done. And so and so the role of the MP is not only to come up with new laws. It's about taking those those laws from the book to the to action. And the way we do this is by creating the process by which the law is implemented and then enforced. We have mm. so many laws that have been advanced yeah. or or proposed but we lack the process of how those laws are going to be implemented. And why? And how to improve the laws. Hmm. So it's not only finding the process of implementing them, it's also revisiting the laws to see whether they have made the impact that was intended to make. And I say Hmm. this because in air pollution in particular, for example, we come up with a law or a recommendation to bring the levels the rec- the, the levels of air pollution down mm-hmm. okay we say there is a strategic plan for example for the air pollution to drop by 20% for example by 2025 i'm yeah. just making numbers yeah, sure, here sure sure yeah and so what do you what do we do we map the emission sources from the grounds we also measure air pollution continuously, and we do simulation scenarios. What if this source is reduced? What if this other source is reduced? And it's an iterative process, because otherwise we don't know whether the law has been, has been, you know, has been fulfilled, and we don't know whether we are able, following the same process, to improve even more. So it's an iterative process that has to be revisited. So mm-hmm. so that's the beauty of the process. It's, it checks and balances.
0: What I appreciate is that you're doing something which works for me right away. It comes naturally. You're taking me back to my AUB days. And all the wonderful ideas that I heard in my career, my long career at AUB, all the passion and enthusiasm that came from almost every single department. And then the immense frustration that all that research is never implemented. So here's a huge question. All the technical skills, all the research has been done. Uh, I think if we both walk down any street today and could be here on Bliss or even anywhere, we will run into experts. And they're usually friends of ours, and I think we all know each other. So we've solved the problems, we've done our work, and then getting that problem-solving, which is what you want, into Parliament, to me still seems like a distant dream. So what could you do which is different than what has been tried before? Is it a block that is insisting on process, is it a coalition of experts within parliament that are making this their, their agenda? Or is there a structural hurdle that is not so visible, maybe, that would make anyone's dreams fade the moment they enter power? Because I, I still don't see it. And I'm saying this as somebody who dreams of it, too. But I still can't see it.
1: But I have done it. Mm. It's not uh-huh. like something that I have not done. Mm, mm. I've done it. I've done it with villages. I, in, yeah. you know, di- I direct the Environment Academy, and I ask local communities mm. to identify their pressing environmental problems. Mm. And I work with them on a systematic approach, mm. of course, with the help of experts. And then together, after we gather the evidence, Together we co-create the best fit solution for the local communities because context mm-hmm. matters a lot.
0: So is this a, I asked Ziad. we actually reached the same point. He sees his role in parliament as married to the municipal level, meaning that he could imagine his, his role representing Beirut ula and also emphasizing the need for pedestrian zones. So, I, I mean, in a way, I think he assumes that it's his responsibility too. Is that similar in that you see an avenue through parliament, but also addressing those local concerns and bringing them together? Or are they separate spheres?
1: No, they can't be separate Mm. because we also work with local municipalities, Mm. with the local government. And sometimes we we work with the regional government. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we even have to go to the ministry to work with the ministry. And I give an example. Mm. We are working with a village that does not have water. They only rely on the water catchments in the winter. And so in the summer, all these ponds... Or, or, or uh, you know, uh, water mm. catchments, they dry out in the yeah. summer. So literally, these people have to truck water into their homes in order for them to get water, mm. right? So in this case, we worked with the local communities. We also have to work with the local authority that is the municipality yeah. and here also we have the North Water establishment hmm. that has to be part of our solution and also we have to go to the ministry to talk to the ministry of energy because we will need their support in order for us to implement a, a, a solution so yeah. solutions even if they seem to be remote and for villages they're not detached from the whole structure from the whole government. Structure. And so slowly but surely, we start implementing and creating uh, pockets of goodwill mm. and pockets of solutions.
0: we will do the camera calibration. <laughs> All right. It's nice to hear somebody that knows what they're talking about from time to time. Believe me. Oh my God. Hundreds of episodes. Like, finally. <laughs> okay. It's really just to make sure that the zoom doesn't go out of focus mm. so no, that it's yeah.
1: It's a break too.
0: Exactly. All right, I'll
1: restart that.
0: <laughs> boom boom boom. so in a sense oh that's my thing so in a sense it's a layered layered form of responsibility and procedure and you're able to see it in a way that goes all the way from the ministry down to the municipality and the pursuit in parliament as opposed to a more traditional role in civil society i think almost everyone i know and I mean this in terms of almost scientific research, everyone I know is running for parliament. (laughs) (laughs) I can show you the stats, Excel sheet, everyone. And maybe 90% are from civil society, Overwhelming majority, and they come from all sectors. I know that you helped establish Khadat Beirut, which was just after the port blast. And many people I know were in that world. On occasion, I even was sitting in a cafe, and I'd see Zoom calls happening, and you were there. Those were Zoom calls on Khadat Beirut. Everyone I know is trying to do the right thing in civil society, and there's deep frustration. Is this a reckoning that civil society's role in Lebanon can only go so far? But to actually move things forward, you have to go another step further, And is that something you came to, in a way, is there a conclusion on your part? Does it have anything to do with the port blast that you saw your role shift a bit? Anything you can say on that, the time frame, and why you're taking this road now?
1: Khadid Beirut is a beautiful initiative that came the second day after the blast. Mm. When Carmen came and visited, and she said, let's take a walk in the city. And literally, we were walking on crushed glass everywhere. We could not find a spot, a place, a small place where we can put our feet without really stepping on glass. It was heartbreaking. Windows of buildings and buildings. We walked for hours, and we couldn't see a window holding there. Furnitures were hanging from balconies. It was Mm. devastating. It was devastating. And Carmen looked at me and she said, we must do something. Hmm. We really have to do something. We can't sit and watch. And we can't let the international organizations come and only give us humanitarian aid. Because that's going to ruin everything we have left. Mm -hmm. And she was absolutely right. And this is when it all started. So we went back to my apartment and we start calling scholars, oh, friends. It's nice to
0: know exactly how it happened. Right. I did not know that it's that intimate. It's yes. really two friends, two colleagues, making magic happen at once.
1: It was magic. Wow. So we called on our friends. And just two hours later, we had almost 100 people, yeah. 100 friends from all over the world, hmm. saying, yes, we want to put our expertise into action. And we want to help our city come back to life. And this is where the word scholar activism came from. I see. But what is very important is that from day one, from, you know, our one, we realized that we're never, we are never going to be replacing the government. Mm. And we are Mm. not an NGO. And what we want to do is only put our... Expertise into action to create models that resemble us, Hmm. small pockets that resemble us, so that we can offer them to the government later to replicate those models and save the city so it was not about humanitarian aid Mm -hmm. it was not about creating our own entity no never it was not about replacing the government because we didn't trust the government we knew that in the government there are places where you can trust Mm -hmm. and there are heroes who are still in their in their in their jobs try trying to fight the system so so and I was so fortunate to work with so many, despite the 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 uh, you know the grim and the the dark situation. I think our work together gave us strength. It gave us hope, and it gave us also. Uh, a lot, a lot of richness, and I always say that. And this is the common good I talk about yes. all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, in two hours, you had 100 people rallying all their energy, all their, that they can do together to create those models of excellence that we call in order for us to alleviate the pain of us first and other family members and friends second. It was beautiful. It was beautiful and really it was magic. And guess what? We got to know six principles because in the education initiative we divided ourselves into mm. four initiatives yes. yeah, education yeah. health um, environment and supporting small and medium businesses mm-hmm. in the education initiative we got to know six principles women who really who were fighting to get the schools back on their feet who ha- who know what, and I'm talking about public schools yes they yeah. know every single student. They know the state of the student. Mm. The teachers are fighting, and they came back to also save the year for the students, without even getting a decent pay that will allow them to cover only the tra- the transportations from from their home to the schools. I mean, I met so many heroes, so many people, so dedicated to their job, to their city, and to Lebanon. It's 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 heart it's heartwarming.
0: I think I mean. That moment, the aftermath, is tremendously tragic and also tremendously terrific. It's the same. Seeing volunteers just show up without any initiative and people not sleeping for weeks on end. And I, I think it's fair to say civil society rebuilt. And a lot of the damage that was within the vicinity of the port, not the state. A lot of people, a lot of NGOs. And I know you're not Khadit Beirut's not maybe an NGO, but the crowd that it attracts was heading all over the place and a lot of good work was done. But I'm going to maybe ask you a more sensitive question here. Because we will get into your district, we will get into your direct pursuit. But I have to ask this because it's maybe it's the bigger question at play. The what allows for a city like Beirut to host over 2,000 tons of ammonium nitrate to begin with, I think is beyond the civil society scope, and I think it's beyond parliament, and I think, unfortunately, it's beyond the state. And I say this in a bold way, because I know technically this is in the state, and there are state actors that should be more far more diligent about something like this but I see this as something that also destroyed Lebanon in 1975. and I see a common thread and I don't want to push you in any direction you're uncomfortable I think we could spend hours talking about that discomfort and it's a different topic maybe but there's part of it I think that feeds in Lebanon pays a price that has nothing to do with the tolerance or the dignity or the genuine uh, love that Lebanese share. And I still don't know what anyone could do to fix that disorder, whether they're from civil society or not. I think it's, uh, it's across the spectrum. So I'll try to narrow this down to something more digestible. Is there an obvious limit to what can be done given the current circumstance? And is there maybe a a short, medium-term acceptance that the, the, the maneuvering space is limited by design, that you can get certain things done a little better, but there is a strategic problem that is beyond us all.
1: I see, I see the two points. I mean, first, we need to become more responsible and people who don't do their job, have to be held accountable for that. Mm. And that's our problem. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not any country's problem, any international community's problem. Mm. Our finding or our build for the structure of the country and become more responsible in governmental jobs is extremely important. Mm. As a chemist, I cannot conceive anyone responsible Allowing ammonium nitrate to be stored with fireworks and with tires and with some coffee and tea together in one container. This is the ABC of safety that we teach to our freshman students. That you cannot put something flammable next to a Bunsen burner. Right. So this is the minimum that has nothing to do with the regional or mm. international politics. Mm. Mm. This is our problem. Mm. And our problem is to put the right people in the right place and to hold responsible people accountable for their action. Mm. And that's extremely important. I cannot conceive also... That Minister of Health, for example, does not do round trips to make sure that what we eat is safe. Those are basic human rights that we chose to ignore or we chose to turn the eye on. It's not acceptable. And I don't believe any international community that wants to sell you know, weapons, or they are very corrupt. Mm. Regardless, this is our responsibility. This is our safety. Mm. This is the safety of their children. It's impossible for me to even think about one responsible person allowing this to happen.
0: I'll tell you a personal story. You would have never known this. Uh, I happened to not be in Beirut when when the port blast happened. I was in New York. Um, I, before I spent days on end trying to donate money through the podcast to a a wide range of NGOs, and it's funny, when you're in New York, when this is happening here, and you look out the window, there's protests happening in, in New York for other issues altogether, and I didn't even see them. My mind was plugged into this tragedy. One of the first things I remember is you telling everyone to close their windows, and I called my mom, and I said, close your window. And it's almost like you're, you're the minister of responsibility. <laughs> you're the minister of environment, or you're the minister, you're just doing your job, and I'm listening to you, and I would never think to even listen to anyone serving the state then. I'm turning to you. This is just a small, silly example maybe, but it shows where the disconnect is. Now, let's fast forward from there, and I'll take liberty in trying to bring Nasser Yassin to the table. <laughs> Our, he's not here. He's been on the podcast a few times before he became minister. I don't know if he'll come on again. <laughs> <laughs> but whether you like him or not, whether you think he's, uh, he's made a mistake in his career or not, I think it's all besides the point. To me, he still represents someone who wants accountability. I still associate him more with the October 17 crowd than I do with either Saad Hariri or Najib Mi'ati. I think of him as an independent man. And I think that is true. And he is the Minister of Environment. Let's assume his intentions are genuine. I don't think much has been done since he became minister. And that's someone with party backing. That's not somebody who's... He's not opposing he's actually one of, he's not able to get much done. Is there any advantage someone not in his shoes has in getting that kind of work done? And I know his is ministerial level, but I'll take it down all the way. It doesn't have to be the ministerial level. It could be at any level. Is there a built-in advantage a more independent person would have trying to do the same work?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to be completely independent of this corrupt crowd. Mm. You can't. Mm. You can't be part of them and do anything. Because everything they do is not a strategic planning. They don't care about the process. They only care about how much there is in it for them. Mm. And I'm not speaking about it just to accuse them. I audited the implementation of the reclaimed land to turn it into a dump in Burj Hamoud and Shlaidi. Yeah. And I saw how they implement the projects. I saw it firsthand. I reviewed documents, hundreds and hundreds of pages, and turned a report of 50 pages okay, to, 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 to the government. They did nothing. I worked with one of the ministers of environment and I told them about the best way to do a solid waste management plan. It's not probably the best solid waste management plan, but we could have discussed it. They didn't even want to discuss it. They just wanted the shortest way to their pocket. So I'm not accusing them based on just feelings. I have evidence
0: I'll be extra careful Because I'll leave this terrain in a bit But let's just assume that The intentions are both On both sides Meaning somebody like him Or someone else From a completely independent party or Forget party, an independent person Is there a wall that is blocking both actors From getting there? Because I'm trying to see What someone else would have been able to do and i'm assuming not every decision taken or not um, not every negligence is done by design i'm assuming there is structural problems that anyone faces in this country and i maybe it's not good to recommend this without having the facts in front of me but i could think that i could think of somebody even more noble than Nasir yassin and i think that dump which is entering or it's in Zdeide already, would continue to grow. And I don't know if I'm being Look, too pessimistic. No, no, no,
1: you're right. Dr. Yassin is a friend and a colleague. And we don't know how much he was able to do. Mm. Because he's been, in, he's been a minister for only a short period That's of true. time. Yeah. It's too early to judge. Mm. And I know he's not saving time without wasting time. Yes. He's, he's, yeah. he's trying. Mm-hmm. And in fact... One of the environment academy projects that we're doing is in Akarlatia and we wanted to protect the fir forest tree. Yeah. And he was very very supportive. Mm. He spent 2 hours with the local community and the head of the municipality there exploring the best ways of how to protect this forest. Mm. So it was this is something that I witnessed. It was in front of my eyes. Right. I was on the table with the local community and he was even willing to go on a hike on this forest to actually highlight the importance of the forest. So it's mm. probably too much too premature to mm. judge of how much he was able to do. Yes. But in general what I meant in general an independent person would be able to make a lot more than a person who has to comply with a party or with a group of people.
0: I think that's a fair judgment to make, and I think it's never properly been tested anyway, so it's worth even trying it. But I wish I was less skeptical of the best intentions facing the same wall. Maybe that's a wall I always hit when I reach that conclusion. But I appreciate the attempt to continue to try, even when it's not coming from a Party necessarily, or even from a political machine, it's coming from the most well intentioned citizens. I'll offer an analogy before we get into Shuf. I had the, maybe I'm very lucky, in early 2000, I was in Bosnia, which has nothing to do with this conversation. But all I can say is that I remember the mountains of Bosnia heading down to Sarajevo. The natural beauty is equally impressive to what we have here. Without the Mediterranean, there's a river. And I remember seeing trash piling up on the shore, these sort of embankments, these r- river coves, and then you'd have just trash being thrown. So kind of like what we do, throwing trash down, the, down into the valley, into the river. It reminded me right away of Normandy Dump, And I know maybe we're dating ourselves. I'm dating myself. But I remember Normandy. I don't think many people that listen to this podcast know what that is. It's the Civil War landfill, which is now reclamation. It's an extension of downtown. But that was trash. And that's 15 years of trash. And that's all I could think about was Normandy and Bosnia, trash and the river. I went back to Bosnia about a decade later. The same exact trip, the same train ride. The same view, there was no trash in the river. And to me, that was startling. It's 10 years of no war, and Bosnia removed that trash. Now, we've had 32 years of technically no civil war. The trash gets worse and worse and worse. I think it has nothing to do with war anymore. It's time. But I see a parallel, in that Bosnia whatever was paralyzing that state from doing its responsibility at a local level, at least, it overcame that problem. I think in 2022, it's a mistake. And you tell me if I'm wrong. I think it's a mistake to not include that problem in the conversation. Meaning, I can only associate negligence and and almost uh, hazard, hazardous situations, with an extension of Lebanon's inability to govern. Not the well wishes or not even the well intentions, it's the inability. And from there, I'll take it in a different way. Everyone keeps saying on the highway, slogans everywhere, things like sovereignty, accountability, justice. Okay, let's stick it justice. Tarabitar Bitar will have no leniency post May 15. Whoever you put in parliament. I think of that, and I think of the trash as the same story. Now, you tell me if you see it differently. I've had many people say this is reckless behavior on my part, but I think it's true. I think it's the same problem. And it's not that everyone that throws trash is thinking about that, but I think it's the same, and it makes no sense. 1974 we didn't have these landfills in 2022 we're drowning in trash so as much as you can say on that terrain
1: the trash problem was there since 1970 Hmm. why 1970 because before that the trash management was decentralized meaning Hmm. the municipalities Hmm were dealing with their own trash Hmm. come 1970 and after the war Hmm. they said enough the municipalities are no longer going to deal with their own trash we're going to centralize it i see and this is when the normandy came oh in
0: 1970 it started yes oh i thought it's a casualty of war only
1: no, I mean, I mean, right after that, and it was it was mainly the casualty of oh, war, right, of yeah. course. But this is when they started centralizing the oh, the, the 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 trash, and then after the Normandy and mm. reclaiming the land, they started the Bush Hamoud mountain. Right. So it was all patches up patching I the see. problem, and not really presenting a strategy to solve the problem. Right, and then they decided to go for the Naami landfill
0: yeah.
1: they say it was one of the most the best sanitary landfills we ever built And it was meant to be temporary if I'm not mistaken and what happened? 15 right. years 15 years, years later yeah. or 20 years later yeah. we're still dumping in this landfill yeah. without even having any plan to reduce waste yeah so and then came the Burj Hammoud problem, and the waste problem, basically, right. and reclaiming the the, the land in Bush Hammoud. So this is a so, governance
0: issue. It's less to do with regional or even strategic security issues. It's really about how you govern at the end of the day.
1: Exactly. Mm. And also, we, we don't want to forget that before the nineteen seventy, even if municipalities were dealing with the trash, there was not a lot of plastic Yes. So most of the trash, even if it was dumped in the valleys or in any place, Mm. it was mostly biodegradable. Right.
0: So this is really just an issue of, for example, the way cars overrode Beirut and turned Beirut into an already degenerating city pre-war, that this is something to do with just modernity in Lebanon, and the civil war is part of that story
1: Mod- modernity without any strategic planning right and we go back to the process and mm. we go back to the strategic planning mm-hmm. yeah so when when they built naami landfill they should have been a plan parallel to this naami landfill yeah. to reduce waste because this is when plastic invaded our culture right so plastic and cardboards And metals are resources. Mm -hmm. And we never wanted to really tap into this resource. Why? Because the company that was dealing with the trash was getting paid by the ton of waste. And so if we were to remove the recyclables, Mm. we are reducing the amount of money that they are making. So it was a deal even then.
0: I didn't know it goes back to the... I didn't know it's a 1970 decision. So this decentralization, which has really caught on in current conversations, I didn't really check on taqaddum and it's whether, whether it sees decentralization the way you're describing it. But is that built into what you're, in a way, demanding, that there's local responsibility? And maybe the word sometimes is not fully understood, but it's not... It's sometimes mixed up with federalism, which I think is not the right way to describe it. It's just, it's administration. Is that part of Takadom's plan, in a sense, to revise decisions like that one in 1970? Yes,
1: yes. Mm. I mean, we, in our plan, would like to push for a decentralized approach. Mm -hmm. But we worry that if it doesn't come with a process and with a way to actually monitor, Mm -hmm. check and balance... The performance of the local government, mm-hmm. that is the municipality, we are going to, you know, push down the corruption to the to the to the last employee of the government or to the municipality. So there is a problem. Mm. We have to create a mechanism, a process, a strategic plan, and in a way to really look at the responsibility of each one of them and follow on their responsibilities. And if we don't do this, that means we're creating, a, you know, a, a smaller government like the government that we have.
0: I'll do the recalibration. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad so far. No, it's huh? good. Huh? You're enjoying <laughs> good. good. to do my homework as much as i can so, i know <laughs> good i mean i i dedicate time and you know i always make sure i not i don't want to sound uh, amateur when i speak with you because i know it's uh it's more it's more rewarding when there's some background let's go down a road that's very obvious you're an expert on air pollutant levels I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but I sometimes lean on what you're writing or what you're saying, whether or not I should open a window or keep it closed. And it's been, what, three or four days now, or maybe longer, no power, no no government power, generator power. And it's toxic to breathe Beirut's air, let alone most of Lebanon right now. It's it's just haze of smog. Oh, that was the timer. (laughs) Let me start that over. smog you enter parliament and we both know that the generator industry in Lebanon is not something that is easily undone and I can't imagine I can't imagine that being tackled properly in parliament even if you have an alternative even if you have the right minister of energy, even if you have the majority of Lebanese demanding it And we saw what happened a few nights ago. I think it was in Pacifico, maybe, in Mono. The Minister of Energy was almost thrown to the wall. He was not singing in that episode, which is good. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a little too much. But how would an MP be able to circumvent what is now decades old, this generator industry in Lebanon, and at the end of the day what really can be done now that we know the world bank is not going to be providing energy as far as i understand that whole deal has sort of become undone there's no nothing coming from egypt anytime soon so in someone in your shoes in parliament knowing that toxic it's it's unbearable now and you have a crisis that is beyond us what what, what can be done
1: there is a lot that can be done in 2010 we did our first study on diesel generators Mm. and the electricity was cut only three hours a day
0: yes right
1: and this is when we found out that anybody living in the city especially in Hamra, this is where we did our study Mm. Would be inhaling toxins equivalent to either one or two cigarettes per day. Wow. That was in 2010.
0: That's only three hours. That's oh, only yeah. three
1: hours. Yeah. And then since then, I was giving recommendations in my publications, and never, never in my life I imagined that we're going to get that far. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was disastrous then. Yeah. And then when I moved back to Ashrafi and I look around and I see generators everywhere. Yeah. The density of generator in the city of generators in the city is fifty percent. That means you have mm. one diesel generator in between every two buildings.
0: Right. And those are irrespective of those regional generators that plug in No, I mean,
1: we counted, we took an area, Mm, and we counted the number of generators, and we counted the number of buildings, and it turned out in 2010, it was 50% and in, oh, that's 20, in 2010 it's 50% right? and oh, in 2018 oh. yeah. it was also to uh, 50%. huh. okay. So the number of diesel generators might not have increased. I see. But yes. maybe maybe the amount of power that we are generating mm-hmm. from these diesel generators have, yeah. have increased probably. And that's before the plunge into exactly. darkness. Exactly. So I yeah. don't have the statistics hmm. post 2018 which yeah. is before the plunge. Yeah, and during the plunge I don't know whether the number of generators has increased or not.
0: Well, let me throw an anecdotal example. I live in Maram Khayr. I'm seeing memories of civil war. Generators on balconies. Something I haven't seen since the 80s. Maybe in the early 90s at most. There's a shop downstairs that is doing the that generator sound every morning. It's the rumbling that I remember of war. And... Everyone is increasingly doing it. I think it's technically still illegal. Um, Is there a way to mitigate the downside of having one of every two buildings, for example, uh, polluting so much short of an electricity solution? Because assuming the government electricity doesn't really improve reasonably, what could be done to at least try to survive this stretch. And I'm sorry for if it's maybe a naive question, but is it just a matter of filtering or trying to have more responsible generator oversight? I mean, how, how does it work? Of course it's a
1: matter of filtering, but mm. where is the catch-22 or the irony of the law? The government for the longest time said we cannot put uh, laws and regulations on the diesel generators. Why? Because it means we're admitting that we have an electricity <laughs> problem.
0: Well, <yeah. laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty bad. <laughs> wow.
1: So for the longest time, they said, there is a law only for huge generators, for big generators. Right, right. But if we start admitting that we have an electricity problem, then we are forced to put laws and regulations on the smaller generators. So we stayed for 10 years in limbo, yeah. where you, you cannot, you cannot there is no law to enforce how these generators are emitting toxins everywhere. And, and at the same time, we cannot live without them because we don't have electricity.
0: Right. So in a way, it's, it's, it's not just admitting, but it's forcing some process on the, this is not sub-state, it's more just state replacement that you're, you're trying to find a solution to what shouldn't even be there to begin exactly. with.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And if we start admitting that these generators are important in the country and yeah. they are the providers of electricity, yes. that means the owners of the generators have the right to make a union. And they become legal. I see. And they, you know, this sector becomes a legal sector in the country where this sector actually emanated from a great need yeah. to subsidize the, power, the electricity cut. Do you see the So, road, so you see the, the complexity yeah, of, of this problem?
0: Yeah. But is that how you see things moving forward, knowing that we're going to remain without serious government. Exactly.
1: So what Mm. we need to do is legalize those people and the the sector and start putting some laws to really enforce some emission control on the diesel generators.
0: This reminds me of a conversation I had with my grandmother about how she stopped using the bus or she stopped using... She used to take the train to Homs from Tripoli. That she started taking the service because there was no other option and I know service is not exactly the same story but it's the alternative transport to get you to the same location and that eventually this was unionized too but it's not it was an informal uh, way of addressing the lack of public transport mm-hmm. so I wonder if I mean it's it's reached almost the end of the road now where we have no government electricity but we have to regulate still so we're regulating the private sector which is Replace the government
1: Exactly yeah. So so, so that's why They don't want to regulate They don't want to admit yeah. That we have a private sector That is providing electricity To people And yet And yet The government is unable To provide any electricity This is hilarious And then They go They go inside The, the ministry Or the You know The cabinet And they discuss Whether they should Privatize electricity It's already privatized that's pri- Right That's
0: well said Actually That's well said there's a something that I have no... Um, I can't see something else happening in the meantime, which is waste burning. Mm-hmm. I've seen it increasing. It, it used to just be a few trash bins. Now it seems to even happen at times in Burish Hamut and Jdeidi, at least at night. It looks like there's fires erupting from trash. And I think that's really happening all the time. We just breathe it now. And we got used to it, but there's a way of dealing with it that is so toxic. And I wanted to ask you if that is if that is carelessness or is that actual policy to burn it, and why it seems to have increased dramatically. And it's okay. yeah. I, I'm sorry. This is
1: this is very very important because in, during our negotiation. Uh, with the local government in uh, government mm. in, in in Beirut and during our protests against incinerators. yes yeah. people were defending incinerators by saying or not people, the local government in Beirut was mm. defending incinerators by saying that the regu- that people in Beirut do not know how to sort their waste so that we can take some of it, to recycling and some of it to dump.
0: This is post use stink uh, this is in right. the yeah right. when the trash right. was unbearable already. Uh,
1: this this was in 2017 uh, 20, 2017 right, right of course yes. So so yeah. post uh, you think movement there was a huge crisis of a garbage crisis. Yes. But then later there were so many discussions about how to solve our solid waste the ma- waste problem, and one of the solution was to bring in incinerators, yeah. right. and we were completely opposing incinerators because not because of the technology itself, just because we, did not, we do not trust the government in really controlling the emissions of these incinerators. And we know that emissions, if they don't burn the incinerators well, they could get really nasty
0: even perhaps worse than what we're seeing now exactly so yeah. so
1: plus plus there was there was a huge investment in incinerators and the mm, return mm. on investment was too much for people to bear because also the type of waste that we have needed extra fuel to add to the to the incinerator yes. so that they burn at the right temperature so it's all about this technological technological challenges that we tried to explain and they didn't want to listen, but that's not the point. Mm. The point mm. is now. People, scavengers, waste scavengers, mm. know that if they pick the plastic and the cardboards and the metals from the waste, they actually can make good money, right. because the ton of plastic that is for you know that is sold for recycling is three hundred dollars. Oh wow! So now. Recycling has become a resource that we have to do. So the scavengers, I believe, who are now picking all these recyclables from the waste yes. bins yeah. and from the landfill in Burj Hamoud and Jdaidi, mm. are smarter than our local government <laughs> because they have realized the importance of these resources. And guess what? Nobody taught them how to recycle. They know how to do it. Nobody taught them how to sort the waste. They know how to do it. What happens after they pick up all of this recyclables, they burn the waste. Because once oh. the new waste comes, they don't want to start, you know, working with the old oh, waste. Oh, I see. So, so they burn it in, uh, on purpose. And guess what? They are so many groups of scavengers now. Yeah. And every night they fight over the recyclables and the local government and and I think the pol- the police does not they're going inside.
0: This is fascinating. I would have never known that this is all happening and it's all happening for I mean, it's you have waste sorting and then you have burning to make sure it's easier to get plastic next round. Right. For, and it's three hundred dollars per ton.
1: Yes, you know, not counting the metals. Right. Yeah. And not counting the the card the, the the paper basically. Wow. So so the scavengers are smart. They know how to sort. Yeah. So everyone could have learned how to sort if right. they wanted to. That's well said.
0: I I always thought of incentive as the need, or even for that matter, on the other end, a fine for not sorting things correctly, or reusing appropriately, or recycling when it's an option. But this is a uh, lawless scenario where the scavenger is doing the job. This is crazy.
1: It is crazy. It is crazy. And it's so sad, because now the scavengers are also picking the recyclables even before they go to the landfill. And they're just dispersing all the waste on the road. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I am not against the scavengers. In the, in fact, they are doing a good job because they are using the resources <laughs> right. wisely. But it's the, f- the
0: after effect. Of, it's it's, yeah. the,
1: it's how they're doing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah.
0: I appreciate this very unique perspective <laughs> on what's going on. I would have never known this. I'm sorry I've taken a lot of your time, Najat. I'll, I'll try to wrap it up with, maybe it's the most important, but it's also, uh, it builds us here. You're running in the Shuf district. You're with Takadum, and in Lebanese terms, it's the right sect for the right qaza, for the right qada, Whatever you can ignore all that. You're you're from your district and you're campaigning where you're meant to campaign. Uh, I'm curious in your in your politics in your pursuit right now. Mm-hmm. When you talk to AUB students, which you do. Fantastically. And when you talk to anyone who's curious like me and you're very persuasive, when you when you're on the ground and it's more grassroots, is this the conversation that is most pressing to what people are they engaging this topic or are they more focused on things that are unfortunately more pressing to them right now? And it could be things that maybe you're not even able to address, meaning the absolute paralysis and financial collapse that we've all witnessed are they seeking solutions that are beyond your scope or are you able to actually touch in on things like this which are it's very important obviously but it's not necessarily what people think of right away
1: i think the lebanese people love to talk politics
0: (laughs) that's the right answer
1: that's it. And and, and 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 sometimes they talk about regional and international politics before they even address their local problems. So they're talking to you about Vienna, and they're and, also talking to you and, about and, and, and and Ukraine war and, and and you know yeah, you what know. What do you think about Ukraine and and waste like, management? It's like what do you think about your health problems? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm waiting for the video where you start talking about <laughs> Ukraine. I'm like, I, uh, what?
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is, I was, I was surprised. I mean, when I do my visits, I always, you know, get prepared to answer about, you know, our, our, our daily concerns of so many things that yeah. we have to deal with. And when I ask them, I mean, what about your concerns? What do you want me to look, what do you want me to do if I get elected? How can I help you? Yeah. And they look like, no
0: answer. Oh, there's no answer. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Oh, okay. I wouldn't have expected this.
1: Yeah. When you ask them like specific questions yeah. about their needs, yes. I don't see clear answers.
0: Can you point to why you think that's happening?
1: It's because no one has asked them before.
0: Hmm. So you're able to be in a way, a maybe the first politician in the making who's approaching politics the way you dreamed long ago. You're doing it the way you think it should be done. Uh, when you gauge an average audience in your politics, is there a point where you start having this discussion?
1: Yes. I mean, they need, they need to trust you. Yeah. You know, people have pride. Mm-hmm. They need to trust you to start talking about their own problems. And I think that's why they like to talk about the international politics.
0: Right. But when you manage to get to the local, what is the most pressing concern you hear when you're able to get there?
1: It's the approach and it's different. I mean, people mm. are used yeah. to ask for help in the immediate term, meaning, I need medication for my for my right. wife, for my yeah. you know, parents, blah blah blah. Yeah. And they expect from the politician to actually either direct them to a friend of a yes. friend of a doctor of a pharmacist and help them immediately.
0: Or even pay, pay them right away. It's that which kind I didn't of, like to yeah, say. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But,
1: <laughs> but what I am trying to say, and this is my answer right away, mm. that I will never give you any money or help before election because I don't accept on me to actually do that. Yeah. I will be able to help you directly, financially, probably after the election. Right. But what I can do is connect you with the next closest primary healthcare center, where you can go, get checked by a doctor, and get your medication with high dignity. You don't need me. You need to know how the system is able to help you. And this is my answer. This has been my answer for the last five months. And I have directed people to the closest primary health care center. They have been checked by doctors, and they have been able to get their medication for, in you know, for a very little
0: money. You know, you're able to see two things. You're able to see how traditional parties in this country operate in first from your own experience, where their demands are the shortcut vote to immediate, very immediate concerns. And you're trying to offer the long-term solution, which will help everyone long-term.
1: With dignity.
0: With dignity. And I think in a way that represents a lot of the voices that I've been fortunate enough to speak with since I started this podcast, but also really since the election season kicked off. And I think uh, the pursuits are all noble, even if some of these people are competing against each other. Um, I think there's a common need and it's a common concern, and you've very eloquently explained it. So I appreciate anyone taking a little time away from campaigning to speak with me. It's the first time we've met. Uh, it's a thrill to actually do this with you.
1: Thank
0: you. I, uh, these are all friends. I did an episode with Mark Daouw. Uh, two weeks into the October uprising at Urbanista, with (laughs) Hossam sitting and listening. Uh, Lori Haithayan, who I know she's not running, but she's obviously in the group. She's been on the podcast. She's a friend. These are the kinds of voices I would want in any government, let alone Lebanon, in any government, any country. But uh, I hope that my skepticism long term is proven unfounded. And I really hope this is really, at the end of the day, an issue of local responsibility. And I hope that's at least the stepping stone in the right direction. So I'll emphasize Najat Khattar. That's your name on the list. Najat Khattar Aoun. Najat Khattar Aoun. Sorry. Not Najat Aoun Saliba. Yes. Najat Khattar
1: Aoun. On the list. Known as Najat Saliba.
0: And she's the right own,
1: (laughs) not the other one. Not the other one. Not the other ones. (laughs) Thank you, Najat. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been, this was a pleasure. And really, really, you made it look like a story. (laughs)
0: 1974 Damour, for me, is, for whatever reason, part of my fondest memories of my childhood. It's not the year, it's the location. And I think it hasn't changed much since then. Every part of Lebanon that has been untouched by war or urban sprawl, to me, is majestic. And Demut is one of them.
1: It's very true. Very, very, very true. That's why I love, I love, love Lebanon. Thank you, (laughs) Najat. Thank you.
0: We did it. We did it. Yes. All right.
1: (laughs) I'll stop the mics. Okay.